From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. There's almost never been a more interesting time to work on international tax issues than right now, and that's mainly because of the two-pillar plan from the OECD to remake how multinationals allocate their profits and to set a global minimum tax rate. As if that weren't big enough, now it looks like the UN may be getting involved with its own global tax initiative. We're going to be hearing all about that from today's guest, Marlene Nembard-Parker. She's a senior tax official in Jamaica, and she's also the co-chair of the OECD's Inclusive Framework, a position created last year to give developing countries a more prominent voice in the organization's process. Marlene spoke to reporter Isabel Gottlieb for this week's Bloomberg Tax Leadership Forum about the role developing countries should be playing here and about the role they actually are playing. But first, Isabel asked her how she has time to work for Jamaica and the OECD all at once. I won't say it isn't challenging. It is. But my administration and my government, they have been very supportive of, of, of this role that I play with the OECD. Jamaica has always uh, partnered with the OECD on many issues over the years. We have benefited a lot from their capacity development programs and um, as well as, you know, they have helped us to amend our laws and they have helped us with our sensitization session. Uh, but we have also been, um, participated in being an uh, advocate on behalf of developing countries. And so when this opportunity came for the election of a co-chair from a developing country, my government uh, uh, felt that this was an opportunity to be at the seat of governance in a different in a different way, and therefore uh, we should try to make a difference. And so, having the support um, of of your government, uh, you know, that helps a lot because I am allowed to carry out my role with the OECD and um, and then I have a very, an excellent staff. The legal department, which I head, is comprised of lawyers as well as technical specialists. So I think that has helped a lot. Let's jump into um, some of those efforts to bring developing countries more into the conversation within the inclusive framework. There have been concerns voiced um, throughout the negotiations over the last few years in the global tax deal that developing countries um, weren't going to receive enough revenue, that um, the inclusive framework was not sufficiently inclusive, for want of a better word. Um, so what is being done now to address these, um, these concerns and to bring developing countries more into the fold, into the, into the negotiations? Um, well, I think in terms of the inclusive framework, you would be aware that the BEPS initiative did not have the involvement of developing countries. It started out only with the developed countries and then in 2016, the inclusive framework itself was launched, which gave an opportunity for developing countries to have a seat at the table and, um, and a voice. That has, not, that has been a, a challenging adjustment, I think, uh, for the for the um, both the OECD and 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 developing countries, I believe that um, the situation has improved somewhat. 
when we look at the two pillar solution, developing countries have played a, a role in terms of the design of the two pillar solution. However, there is a feeling that many of the concerns of developing countries have still not been addressed and that uh, having a voice at the and, and a seat at the table uh you know there's still a long way to go in terms of um being treated equally in terms of having your concerns addressed i think uh creating the role of a developing co um, country uh co-chair uh, was an attempt on the part of the OECD to have the voice, as I said, at the governance level. And I also have to say that notwithstanding the fact that we are not at the point where it is felt that developing countries have the kind of influence that they would want to have in terms of the agenda of the inclusive framework, developing countries, I think, have been very uh, robust the persons who represent the delegates from developing countries are highly skilled, highly articulate, very knowledgeable. And so they have been able, I think, uh, even without my intervention, to express their concerns very well. Those concerns that um, that you had mentioned about their voices, developing countries' voices not being sufficiently heard, were those um, concerns related to process. And here I'm thinking about some of the criticisms we've heard of the OECD recently as work has started at the UN on another kind of alternate stream of a potential international tax um, framework has been the relative merits and drawbacks of a consensus-based versus a majority-based decision system. Um, is that part of what's at play? Can you talk a bit about um, about that issue and kind of related issues that help determine mm -hmm. how well a country is able, especially a smaller country, is able to have its voice heard in sort of these respective forums? I think the, um, the way by which decisions are made is definitely a factor. Um, the, uh, the process at the OECD is that uh, proposals are made and if there, if nobody objects, then it is assumed that there is a consensus, as as opposed to the the UN, where members there's a vote by way of membership, and members get an opportunity to express how they feel on particular issues. I think we need to remember that the OECD it's um, comprised of thirty eight countries. And so the primary mandate of the OECD is to act in the interests of those 38 countries. And so therefore, um, the expectation that they will put as front and center non-OECD countries, we really have to think about whether or not that is a realistic expectation of the OECD itself. So over the last year, we've seen this exact topic um, really come front and center in this kind of global conversation about whether the OECD or the UN is a more appropriate place to be having a conversation to be conducting work towards international tax reform. Can you address sort of your, your personal views? Do you see these as um, frameworks that can complement each other and work in parallel? 
um, will countries ultimately have to decide, you know, between two offers, two solutions, which way they're going to go? Um, I don't think that that is the intention at all. I believe that the UN resolution is a, a, seeks to address uh, the issues of legitimacy as to who is responsible for setting global tax rules. And that is an issue that both developing and developed countries have to engage on. The question of legitimacy is paramount because it affects um, the way that decisions are made. If um, if you have, uh, the, the OECD has 38 countries, the UN has um, over 190 uh, countries, and uh, there's an overlap of membership because the inclusive framework itself has 141. So you're talking about practically the same uh, membership in terms of the inclusive framework itself. But the agenda, as I said, at the OECD is governed by the interest of the developed um, countries, mem members of the OECD. I believe that um, the discussion uh, regarding whether or not the UN body is going to duplicate the work of the OECD or will in some way undermine what the OECD is doing. I do not believe that that is what the discussion should be about. And I do not believe that that is the intention at all. The OECD has done excellent work over the years. And the UN resolution, in fact, speaks to that. It speaks to building on the work that has been done by the OECD. And so the intention, I don't think, is to replace the OECD or um, the, the, the work that it does. I think the intention is to have a forum that developing countries can raise their issues, where their issues can be front and center, and that solutions can be made in a way that incorporates from the least developed to the most developed, where members can voice their concerns and they can take decisions. They can feel that their, their voice is heard. They can feel that, you know, you don't have to be the most technically uh, knowledgeable person in the room, but you, you have concerns, you have an opportunity to voice them and you get the, you get the, up, the, the feeling that those, um, that your voices are being heard. What um, what sort of an ideal outcome of the UN work? Um, what do you see as sort of what it could achieve? What you're sort of hopeful that it will achieve? Uh, well, um, well, I know I know that a recommendation has been made by the FACTI panel. I also know that there are still discussions that are ongoing as um, the UN tries to shape what this UN body will look like. Uh, they, they will be drawing, I know, on the work of the OECD, but they will also be drawing extensively on the work of the UN Tax Committee itself, which works in the interest of developing countries in terms of um, you know, manuals that provide guidance in various areas. And so I, um, I think that the, at the end of the process, what will be and this is this is just my my um my own opinion in the end um what will happen is that you will have a body where developing countries will vote on issues by way of uh, membership that they will uh set the agenda in such a way that their 
own concerns will be addressed. So voting, I think, will be different. It will be done differently. Governance, I think, will be dealt with um, differently. And I think that inclusiveness will become more of a verb than a noun because uh, it's, it is... Um, you have to see inclusiveness is has to be live, it has to be active, and it has to be uh, practical. Let's um, turn back towards pillar one for a moment. The deal was agreed in October 2021. We're about a year and a half on from the original signing. Um, you're in the room talking to governments um, throughout the inclusive framework. Is your read that there is... Um, optimism on on getting pillar one agreement by mid-year there is commitment there I, I i will say that there is commitment i um optimism uh, <laughs> um well if, if if there is commitment then i believe that um you know underlying that is the feeling that we can actually have a deal before year end. So uh, I know people, I know the secretariat, the various subsidiary bodies, the steering group. I know that we are all working tirelessly towards this goal of having um, the multilateral convention open for signing. And some countries have already introduced pillar two. And and I, I think those are those are very, very positive steps in the right direction. I have to reflect on the word uh, optimism for a while, <laughs> um, Isabel. I think I think um, if I were to grade optimism, then I probably would say cautious optimism. That's fair. So there, clearly there have been a number of issues that have just been really kind of sticky, difficult issues for countries to reach resolution on um, on the on the various pillar one building blocks. Uh, withholding tax, in particular, something that comes to mind um, that uh, countries, you know, have very clear reasons for the positions that they hold on that issue. And it, it seems like it's just been hard for them to 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 find an agreement on that. Um, can you talk about some of those issues, maybe particularly withholding tax, that have been particularly difficult over the course of the negotiations and um, and why? Okay, well, that, that is one of the, the issues that is still under uh, discussion. And so, you know, to safeguard the confidentiality of the discussions within the steering group, uh, what I will say about the withholding tax issue is that um, withholding taxes are very important to developing countries. You know, it's a very important source of revenue for many developing countries. The inclusion of withholding taxes in the rules is likely to um, adversely impact primarily developing countries. And so the um, concern that developing countries have is that withholding taxes, that issue was never a part of the consensus that was signed in October of last year. But other countries have raised the issue of whether or not um, you know, not not including withholding taxes would, would result in, in double taxation. And and so there are discussions around around that issue. There is a feeling by developing countries that uh, if the withholding taxes are uh, impacted, then it would result in less of an allocation of the agreed 25% 
that is uh, the, the amount that with, um, you know market jurisdictions are supposed to to get. And so discussions are ongoing. Uh, there is a consistent effort to try to reach an agreement on the issue, but the discussions are challenging. What do you see happening um, in a world where Pillar 1 either isn't agreed or isn't ratified by a critical mass of countries? Well, if, if Pillar 1 um, does not materialize, then I think that we would be looking at a plethora of initiatives. We already have in this space unilateral DSTs. Um, and so I imagine that countries would be introducing or um, continuing with their DSTs or another tax based on different nexus rules to the current rules, such as significant um, economic presence rules. Some countries may adopt Article 12B in their treaties, but the question here, however, is whether or not developed countries will be willing to agree to a treaty that has Article 12B in it. That, that may prove um, challenging. Some countries may opt to just introduce a value-added tax and just not be bothered with the complexity of, of tackling a corporate tax. I think regional bodies such as ATAF may develop you know, their own version of a, of a, of a DST. And so um, what may also happen is that some countries may decide to just adopt Pillar 2. Uh, some countries are, have started to do that already. So I think you see a, a plethora of initiatives, so which, which really come down to different aspects of the two-pillar solution, uh, but not um, how it would have been conceived. Brilliant. It was so lovely having you on. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us. This was uh, really wonderful and um, very informative. Hey, thank you. That was Marlene Nembard Parker, co-chair of the OECD's Inclusive Framework, speaking to Isabel Gottlieb. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Meg Shreve is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law. We're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC, under Chair Lena Khan, 
even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.